0: There's times in life where the universe, or God, or however you want to describe it, seems to reach out, tap you on the shoulder, and whisper into your ear. There's more to this than it seems. And when those moments make themselves known to us, what do we do? These moments can be visceral experiences that are hard to just acknowledge and then cast them aside. These feelings linger like slivers slowly wiggling their way to the surface of your skin. In a lot of ways, this episode is about things that are lost and found. And I don't mean the mismatched gloves and pencil cases that you used to find in your elementary school's office. Today, we're going to be looking at stories of memories that may or may not be our own. The forgetting of oneself and, well, the possibility of reincarnation. Yeah, you heard me right. Reincarnation. But enough of me. I'm going to let this episode speak for itself. So sit down and buckle up because we're about to go on a wild ride. I'm Philip Russell. I'm Evan Michelonis. I'm Shira Kresh. And I'm Ben Thorpe.
1: What are you listening to? You are listening to the Looncast. You're listening to the Looncast. So this first story we've got for you today is from a woman named Taylor.
2: Hi, I am Taylor Penn.
1: I guess if we maybe we'll start with your relationship with your grandfather.
2: Okay. I met him when I was 13 years old. The relationship was kind of strange. He is actually the stepfather of my stepmom. And I met him at, like, this family gathering, and I was kind of thrown in with a bunch of people, and he was the one that I bonded with right away. He was very welcoming. He insisted that I called him, like, Grandpa Jerry, like, right off the bat before... Anything was set in stone, and it was, it was really comforting.
3: Okay, so she's at this family gathering, and this guy just, like, comes up to her and's like, call me Grandpa? Pretty much. Okay, sounds like a cool guy.
1: I'd hang out with him.
3: All right, so what's this guy do for a living?
2: His job was art restoration and conservations. His job is focused around the Capitol Building in Lansing. Er, it was. His job was focused around the Capitol Building in Lansing. It was, it was his life.
1: And would he, would he ever take you to uh, see him on these restoration projects, or did you ever get to work with him?
2: I did. And that's actually, um, that's kind of where the, where the story starts, I guess.
1: At 16 years old, Taylor had a lot of anxiety about her future.
3: Can you relate to that, Ben?
1: Not at all, Shira. Anyways, while her fellow classmates were applying to colleges and making plans for after graduation, Taylor continued to search and wonder what on earth she would do with her life. And when her grandpa, Jerry, became aware of her predicament, he offered to let her shadow him at work one day.
2: So I went to work with him. First, we took a tour of the Capitol. He showed me all the secret rooms and places that people don't get to go, like on the tours. He showed me this spot in the the rotunda on that glass floor. If you stand there and talk to yourself, it sounds like you're talking in your own ear. Like the sound bounces all over the room and it lands just right. So then after that, he took me around and showed me exactly what it is that he does. He was working on some paint touch up in one of the hallways. And it was something that I didn't really need a whole lot of training to be able to handle. And so he was like, I feel comfortable letting you do this. Like, let's give it a try. So we worked on that and then we went out to lunch and that's kind of where like the talk happened, where he asked me what I felt like doing and what I what I loved enough to be able to make a career out of.
1: As a high schooler, it can be really difficult to figure out what you want to do with your life because A, it's daunting. And B, you have no idea what's really out there. Taylor knew one thing and one thing only. She wanted to be in the art world. And with Grandpa Jerry's life experience in the industry, he was able to give her some insight into options that could suit her. It was a good talk.
2: And it was like that one day sort of sculpted what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. So a couple months later, this was just after I started my senior year of high school, uh, he passed. It was unexpected and very hard on everyone in the family.
3: Whoa, 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 hold up. I feel like we were just getting to know this guy.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's exactly how Taylor feels.
2: Like I said, I met him very late in life. Well, not super late, but like 13. I was already a teenager. I only had a few years with him. So I felt like, like there wasn't enough time to... Continue building that relationship.
3: Okay, so then what happens? Now that our hero's gone, where's the story going, Ben?
1: Shira, be patient.
3: And then after that, my little brother was born. His name is
2: Oscar, and he was in my apartment with me. And there was a picture that I had taken that day with my phone of the rotunda in the Capitol. And I had a, a small print made, and it was on my fridge. I had gone somewhere and Oscar had gotten into the refrigerator and he saw it there. I walked out and I asked him what he was looking at and he told me, He's like, I've been there. I told him, No, nobody you haven't. He was he was very adamant about it. He's just kept saying, like, Yes, I have, yes, I have, I've been there. I know this place and I played along. He was so steadfast to this idea that he had been there before. That I'm just like, okay, who were you with, and what did you do while you were there? And I was just asking him all these questions, and you know, kids, they make things up. But he was like, I was there with you. And at that point, I'm like, No, you weren't. <laughs> like, we've never, we've never taken you there. We've, like, you've never been to this place. So what makes you think you've been there? And he goes, Taylor, I was there with you, and we painted. My heart sank a little. What did you just say? I... And he's like, yeah, you and I, we painted. And I was like, what did we paint? And he goes, a wall. So we painted a wall. I flashed back to like being there with my grandpa and painting the wall. And I sat him down and I was like, buddy, you've never been there. We've never taken you there before. And he's like, yeah, there was that spot on the glass testing. where you talk to yourself.
3: Okay, am I hearing this right? Taylor's little brother, Oscar, is only five years old at this point, and he seems to be remembering in vivid detail a day that Taylor shared with her grandpa Jerry that happened long before Oscar was even conceived.
1: Exactly.
3: Yeah, but how do we know he's not just pulling her leg? I mean, I know he's only five, but couldn't Oscar have picked up on some of these details by listening to stories or whatever?
1: I I guess that's possible. Uh, Just keep listening.
3: Because Grandpa
2: Jerry's death was so hard on everyone, that's something that we didn't we never brought up to him. Like we made it a point to never take him to the Capitol because it was so painful for all of us. Like I personally have only been there once. My stepmom has never been back. My grandma Connie, who was married to him, has never been back. It's very painful because it feels like he's there.
1: What did I mean, what did that what did that feel like? Especially, you know, you were talking about feeling like you didn't have enough time? Did it feel like this was, like, an an access to that? Did you feel like he's here, this is Grandpa? Or was it like, you know, this is just some kid saying some stuff?
2: It was a little scary, but also, like, weirdly comforting. Uh, The more time I spend with him, the more I see, like, mannerisms that resemble Grandpa Jerry. Like... The way he hums, he's constantly humming. And that's something that Grandpa Jerry did. It's, it's almost to the point where it's like hard to spend
1: time around him. I know what you're thinking. He's a little kid and he hums. Not really all that remarkable, right? But they made a conscious effort not to project their theory onto Oscar.
2: It's hard to believe that he's so similar to him when they weren't related by blood and they've never met. If we catch him doing something similar to Grandpa Jerry, like, that's something that came from him. It wasn't something forced. But if we start, like, showing him pictures of Grandpa Jerry and all these places that Grandpa Jerry used to hang out, then it's like we're forcing it. After Grandpa Jerry passed, all the grandkids were given the opportunity to take one of his belongings, Something to hold on to. My cousin picked like a globe and my other cousin picked a couple of his books and I picked his paintbrushes. He had this really nice set of brushes. It was, you know, something that made me feel close to him. I was painting with Oscar. He and I were having a good time. He was at my place and I had picked up a couple of small canvases and some cheap brushes for him and we were painting. And I pulled out... The set of my grandpa's brushes, there's a fan brush that I use pretty regularly. Without skipping a beat, Oscar saw that I had it and snatched it out of my hand. He messed up what I was doing. Like, he jerked it out of my hand. And at first, I was, like, really angry. I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, you don't just take things from people. And he's like, I've been looking all over for this. This is my favorite brush. He's like, I've been looking all over for this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Why do you need a fan brush? Mm. (laughs) And we just, we left it at that. But the fan brush was a brush that my grandpa Jerry used because he did a lot of landscapes. It was the brush that he says he
3: used the most. So Ben, what do you make of all this?
1: Here's my thought. I, I think it's hard to let go of our relationships, especially the important ones. The thought that you could still be able to have these relationships even if it's only one piece of them, that's really comforting. I think Taylor sums it up pretty well.
2: Like I said, I felt like I didn't get enough time with him. And so it's almost like it's almost like a second chance. I find, even though it's hard to spend time with him sometimes, just because like the mannerisms are there and he does and says things that remind me of Grandpa Jerry, and it's kind of painful, but it's nice to be able to think, I'm getting more time with this person, even if they don't look the same, even if everything they do isn't like spot on. It's like I'm getting a second chance to get to know this person more and build that relationship that I didn't get to build the first time around.
0: Okay, so we're about to take you down a little bit of a wormhole.
4: With stories like Taylor's, I think it's easy to dismiss the bigger questions that it asks.
0: Yeah, like, what the heck?
4: So we did a little dicking into reincarnation, and we came across the same name over and over again. Dr. Ian Stevenson.
0: His claim to fame was roughly 3,000 documented cases of reincarnation. And before you worry that this guy is like a full-blown nut job, which, I mean, he could be there are a couple things we should lay the groundwork for.
4: At 38, Stevenson was chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia, so he's no dummy.
0: He started out as a biochemist, but became more and more interested in understanding how things like personality might affect diseases that we can contract. Basically, he was kind of interested in, can our personality affect our biochemistry? Which eventually led to a stranger question. Can personalities persist after death? And in 1968, the inventor of the Xerox copying process, Chester Carlson, died and left millions to the University of uh, Virginia.
4: But with one stipulation, the money had to be used for Stevenson's research. And this started at the University of Virginia's Division of Perceptual Studies, which still exists
1: today. And I thought my liberal arts major was useless.
0: Self-burn. woo So that kicked off what is still the most extensive research done on reincarnation studies in the world.
4: Stevenson traveled the world, Alaska, Turkey, India, Sri Lanka, everywhere. Stevenson talked mostly with children because he believed that past life memories were strongest in early childhood and then faded as the children got older.
0: So for most of these cases, he would collect the stories about these past lives and then he would try to find someone that matched that story.
4: The details, more often than not, would lead to a person.
0: Here's one case. Stevenson visits a girl in Sri Lanka who claims she remembers being drowned by her brother. And then she gives him the details. So her father was a flower vendor named Harith, and she lived in this town named Kataragama. And there were these Hindu temples by their house. And people sometimes, uh, because of tradition, used to smash coconuts on the ground near it.
4: Yeah, so... Stevenson visits the town where he finds a flower vendor who lives outside a Hindu temple where coconuts are smashed on the ground as part of a religious ceremony, whose daughter was drowned by her older brother.
0: And these details are so, so specific, it makes it really hard to argue against these kind of cases.
4: Yeah, but with all of these cases, remember roughly 3,000 of them, Stevenson would set out to debunk them.
0: And he set up this whole metric that would that would make a case stronger. So... A case in cultures that didn't believe in reincarnation was inherently stronger because there wasn't so much of a bias toward it. And we found out that the cases where the past life memory had only recently appeared were the best ones.
4: Stevenson would try to find the family of a person's past life and confirm details about a child's story with them. It was better for Stevenson to meet with these families independently of the children.
0: Right. Basically, there is a concern that families would swap details back and forth, and there's no way to know if a kid was actually remembering something from the past life or if it was just from them, you know, hanging around their family members a lot.
4: Those cases are really weak. So Stevenson's ideal cases would let him hunt down the past life so that there was no chance of cross-contamination.
0: And the other thing that made a case strong was if the past lives were in an other, another part of the country or another place in the world, and the cultures didn't necessarily line up, so there wasn't as much chance for contact.
4: There are some crazy cases, though, where kids start speaking foreign languages, and their parents are like,
0: what's happening? So this led us to try our hardest to get in touch with somebody at the college.
1: But they politely declined an interview.
0: Like seven interviews. Ben kind of bombarded them.
4: Yeah, but they were kind enough to direct us towards some people we could talk to as well, as some research we could use for the segment.
0: Yeah, real quick shout out to Jesse Baring for his article, Ian Stevenson's Case for the Afterlife and Life After Death.
4: Also, Tom Schroeder's book, Old Souls. A lot of the info we just kind of vomited up comes from those sources.
0: So that first story from Taylor is really interesting and all, but I'm sure you're probably sitting there wondering, well, what am I supposed to do with that? And I'm right there with you. It sounds really believable to me and incredibly honest. And I'm not really sure how I'd reason it away, but it's hard not to think that it's just some quirky story about a little kid who said some crazy stuff And he happened to be on the mark.
3: So some folks from the University of Virginia that we mentioned earlier put us in touch with two psychologists in Manhattan who specialize in reincarnation cases.
5: I am um, Dr. Roxana Namavar. I am a practicing
6: psychiatrist in Manhattan. Uh, And my name is Dr. Catherine Waldrop. I um, am a physician also from private practice in Manhattan.
0: So right off the bat, the one of the first things that we asked them about was, you know, how do you even approach a story like this?
6: I think the most
5: important thing when you have a patient who comes in with these with these memories um, is, to, is to just really explore what the meaning of the memory is for the person and how it affects their current situation and whatever it is that they're dealing with in the moment. Because a lot of people will come in with these memories and they can actually be um, really, really comforting um, I haven't had a lot of patients who come in and see me and talk about these memories as as disturbing. So it's really more about exploring the memory and understanding what that means for them and what that means about their understanding of the world.
3: Roxana and Catherine do, well, what most psychologists and psychiatrists do best. They're great listeners who aren't just interested in necessarily the facts of the situation, but also what these memories and stories that their patients tell mean for them. Catherine had this to say. I think it can
6: also be kind of shed some light on what's happening, sort of to further the point, shed some light on what's happening in that patient's life, you know, in this current lifetime, as we could talk about it. You could say, okay, why are these particular memories coming up? What do these have to do with things that are important to you now or for the reasons or for what's happening in your life, what you feel the purpose of your life is? A lot of times people feel that sort of their ultimate purpose on Earth has something to do with um, continuing a previous story, rectifying something that happened in a previous story, sort of coming to terms or peace with uh, something that happened in, in, a, in another life. I think I've had a number of patients where that has come up for them, um, and they've seen it from that perspective, and we've, we've talked about it that way.
0: Now, you would think that when you're dealing with these, I think we can all agree, kind of out there stories, it's easy to gravitate toward thinking that these kinds of stories only are told by children. And if you do think that, you're wrong. No, no. If you do think that, then you're partially right. Roxana and Catherine say that it's pretty common throughout the world, but as you can imagine, many of these children grow up and it's not like these experiences just go away. At least not if they really affected you. Catherine and Roxana actually only work with adults.
3: Which is interesting because remember, Dr. Ian Stevenson worked ex- pretty much exclusively with children. So
6: these are, these are talking with adults, um, and often their memories that they first came up when they were children, but they've remembered them, that they sort of continued as something that they recall, or even they can be sometimes occasionally stories. I've had a very interesting uh, person whose family told them about when they were children. You know, they would uh, speak in a foreign language and. Um, you know, call family members names that an older family member used to call them they were from Italy and she was speaking in an ancient sort of Italian dialect you know pinching her mother on the cheek and saying you know oh my baby my baby that kind of stuff and they the family became convinced that she was the reincarnation of, of uh, their grandmother or great grandmother um, so it, you know there's it can also be that kind of story where there's the continuous story from when they were children
5: I think it can be both. Or just like you can have memories of, of your childhood from this lifetime come up when you're struggling with something in particular in adulthood. Um, I, I think that these memories can come up because it will help the person and the patient with an understanding of, of their worldview in this lifetime and perhaps whatever it is that they're dealing with in the moment. and. These memories could also be triggered by, by a certain um, emotional reaction, for example, that is similar to the the original memory.
3: So you're probably wondering, how do these two even meet? It can't be that common that you find two psychiatrists who are both interested in reincarnation in any serious capacity.
6: Uh, the way that Dr. Navar and I met were actually at the Division for Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, which is a part of the, the psychiatric department and looks at Um, Issues of human consciousness, and sort of what is consciousness, how does it relate to time and physicality, Um, and it looks at the issues of past lives.
3: At the University of Virginia, Catherine was introduced to Ian Stevenson's research, and was intrigued.
6: But I did get to read a lot of his original notes, and what sort of struck me, I recall at the time, was the relationship between the memories and sort of the family system uh, in this current lifetime. Um, you know, that it was seen in different kinds of cultures. These memories are seen in different
0: ways. And this is where Catherine said something that was really interesting to me. She talks about how Stevenson's research suggested that the more a culture was accepting of beliefs surrounding reincarnation in past lives, the more likely those citizens would be willing to report it to medical officials.
3: Not too hard to believe. Cultural bias is very real. I mean, if we all came from a culture where it was culturally acceptable to eat with your hands, like somewhere in Africa— or maybe use chopsticks like a lot of East Asian countries do, I'm sure that the four of us would be much more
0: likely to do the same. Yeah, true. And I think this is just a little bit different. I think what Catherine and Roxana are getting at is that while it may be more common for these kinds of stories about past lives and reincarnations to propagate in places where it's kind of common in their religion or culture to accept these things, That doesn't mean that these stories aren't happening everywhere else in the world. It's just that it's more stigmatized. You don't get as much reports on it.
6: I don't know that that has to do with the actual frequency of it happening, but rather maybe that, you know, more children have it and don't talk about it in Mm -hmm. cultures where it's not sort of part of the accepted sort of narrative of what is life and what is family and, and what is sort of the continuity, what is consciousness, you know, that kind of idea.
3: Okay, so now you might be wondering, what do they even do with the stories after their patients tell them about these memories of past lives? Well, as you can imagine, they have to do a lot of research to uncover the facts and piece together these mysteries of the mind.
5: I think that there are... um a lot of cases, and, and in the research, there's a lot of cases where we take sort of the facts that the the person remembers and we'll go and, what Ian Stevenson called it, validating these facts and do um, research in order to
6: find out whether whatever the person is saying is true or not. I find sort of the idea of, you know, the puzzle and the problem of what is consciousness, how is it? tied to our brains how is it not tied to our brains how does it relate to time how does it relate to sort of the physical universe that we live in um, I think it's a very important problem and I think these kind of things sort of they lead you to start to question okay what's going on and let, can we look at this from a scientific perspective and if not even from a scientific perspective from the perspective of a psychiatrist that's that's looking at a patient's experience of life you know, all of our experiences are filtered through our own minds. And so even, you know, if we go to a dinner party, my memories of the dinner party are going to be different from your memories of the dinner party. And neither memory is less real or more real. Um, it's just this, this sort of perception of it and to understand that and to understand a patient's view.
0: And I think that when you listen to these kinds of stories that are fairly nebulous and hard to grapple with it's easy to think, well, what's the answer to this kind of occurrence? Or what's the point in these kinds of stories? Or maybe even that these people are crazy, that there's no way for these things to happen, no matter how numerous they are. Um, And that it's just kind of like an oddity of the mind, a quirk in your system. But maybe that's the beauty in it. The mystery, the not knowing why, that speaks true to a lot of things we're all gonna experience in life. And Roxana and Catherine think that's okay. But they say it a lot better than me, so here's them.
5: Well, I think that it, it kind of allows us to think that maybe there is really something greater than ourselves. I mean, the the question of what happens before we're born or what happens after we we die has always has been something that human beings have been searching for since we have any recorded history. Um, so I think that it just, it just gives us the opportunity to think that there is, and, and explore the, the fact that there may be something else,
6: whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, I would say that one of the consequences is to think, well, you know, that maybe the world and existence isn't so um, rigidly adherent to our ideas of what it is after all. There's a lot more mystery out there. There's a lot more possibility, there's a lot more that we don't know, and you know, assuming that we do know is probably, assuming that we know anything for sure, you know, in science, which is, we often like to do it, but if we usually, you know, with enough time, many things turn out to be wrong. (laughs) So, I think it sort of opens up that idea that there is more to this human consciousness, there is more to our existence on the planet. Um, Then perhaps we know now or even ever will know. But it opens up, I think what it does is sort of open up to the possibility of many different kinds of existence and memories and what does happen and what doesn't happen. And I think sort of open up to those kind of possibilities, no matter what culture or what religion you're from, I think is, is good. I think it expands our idea of what life is. And what our relationships are, and how our mind works.
1: Okay. There's a thread in here that I want to touch on because I think it's at the crux of a lot of this reincarnation stuff. Here we go. I think there's a desire for a lot of us for things to keep going, especially in our relationships. Right. There's something very normal about wanting our relationships to keep growing. Especially for relationships that matter to us. I'm thinking about Taylor's story of her grandpa. The relationship that means so much to us makes it harder to think of those as just ending. And I think whoever you are, at some point you believed, or at least wanted to believe, that these things can keep going, that the people we love keep going in some way or another. Which is what makes a lot of this reincarnation research so, so, so compelling, but also really easy to fall into. Like, I kind of want this stuff to be real. Right, and this leads us into the next part of Stevenson's story. He's done all this research, compiled all these cases, but he never actually comes out and says he believes in reincarnation. His sticking point is always, this deserves a second look.
3: For the most part, as I'm sure it's not very hard to believe, the scientific community doesn't really take his research very seriously.
0: But for those who do give it a second chance, they always come back with two main critiques. If reincarnation
4: exists, where is the mechanism for it? Like, how does it work? Right, because if you don't have a mechanism for reincarnation, then how can we ever prove it's real? Which leads us to the second question,
1: is it science? Right. If there isn't a real way to test his hypothesis, no way to truly measure or understand what's going on, then it's a nice idea, but there's no way of knowing if it's real. And that puts it outside the world of science. It's a question that, frankly,
4: he's not ever really able to answer. Again and again, he'll say, look at all these cases. But when people ask, how is this working? There's not much you can offer.
3: Enter the locked box experiment.
4: The locked box? The locked box. (laughs)
0: So Stevenson hears this story about a widow.
4: Supposedly, her husband dies without leaving her the code for their joint lockbox.
0: Dick.
1: Presumably full of really important documents. And she's trying all these different kind of codes, and nothing
0: is working. Her world is pretty much falling apart. And then, blammo, she hears her husband's voice from beyond the grave whispering the code. Five, seven, two,
4: three, three, zero. And of course, she uses the code... And
0: unlocks the
4: box.
3: This story is for sure made up.
0: For sure. But Stevenson thought it was a good idea if you could lock up a box before you died with a code that only you knew.
4: And then somehow get that code back from the spiritual realm. Then you've got yourself some
1: proof.
0: That heaven is for real.
1: Or something.
0: So he does it. He comes up with a phrase that you have to use a key to turn into numbers. And then through those series of numbers, you get a combination that would then unlock the box.
1: So what's in the locked box? How are we supposed to know that?
0: Well, Stevenson writes about this idea and about how it would prove the afterlife for a solid 25 years. He's like really into this idea.
4: Yeah, because for him, it would offer proof. It would show that there was something to all of his research. So then what?
0: Well, on February 8th, 2007, he dies. And the New York Times mentions in his obituary that he's got this whole locked box experiment going on.
4: So, the codes for this thing just start pouring into the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia.
0: Letters, emails, calls.
4: Everyone and their mom me. is calling in to say Stevenson me. had communicated the code to them.
0: Oh my God, that's great.
4: Did any of them work?
0: No, they didn't. God.
3: <sighs> so, it's all bunk, all that for nothing?
0: Well, he did give himself an out.
3: Of course he
4: does.
0: What's he say? basically, that maybe the afterlife is a lot to take in. So, it's easy to forget something like a combination to a lock.
4: Yeah, or maybe another possibility would be that we just stop caring. Maybe once we die, all this stuff here stops mattering.
1: Okay, but you'd think for a guy that spent his whole life trying to prove the existence of the afterlife, he could take the 15 minutes needed to beam his code back to Earth.
3: Exactly. You'd think.
1: Well, I guess it was a little bit much for me to hope that we could prove the existence of the afterlife in this episode, guys. Ben, don't be dumb.
0: I think it's time for Ryan.
1: Time for Ryan. Okay, so Ryan Smith is a friend of mine currently living in Chicago. He wrote this short story about his grandma, and I think it offers a nice counterbalance to the stories of reincarnation. One of the things that makes reincarnation so compelling for me is being able to find the people we love in unexpected places that some part of them continues on after they die. Ryan's story, as you'll see, centers around something different looking for the people we love in places we're used to having them and realizing that they aren't there anymore. Okay, enough of me. Here's Ryan.
7: My grandmother has a notorious sweet tooth. I inherited it to strongest amongst her four children, 11 grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. I love sweets and I try hard not to eat them, though my grandmother has always subtly encouraged it. When I was eight months old, my parents left me in the care of grandma for a weekend. She gave me my first taste of Sprite. He loves it, she told my parents. My mother, determined to raise me on elbow grease and health food, was horrified. My love affair with pop has been hard to kick, but after nearly 25 years of drinking a can a day, I've more or less given it up. Growing up, I loved trips to Grandma's house for two reasons, Twix and Count Chocula. Her cupboard always had a box of Twix candy bars, which she would duly feed me whenever I came to visit. To this day, Twix is my favorite candy. Every morning at Grandma's house, I would eat a bowl of Count Chocula, the kind of sugary, chocolatey sludge that kids and my grandmother love, and adults just don't understand. This was in the Halcyon 1990s, the days before General Mills decided Count Chocula should be a seasonal cereal. They were better times. My dad is one of four boys, all tall and loud, and our family is boisterous and overcrowded. He was the only one of his brothers who moved away from Midland, Michigan, the town where they all grew up. So we would trek up there at least four times a year, usually for Easter, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, and every holiday would conclude with a big dinner befitting a family as large as ours. We would all crowd into Grandma's dining room to say grace, Grandma's a strict Lutheran and won't hear of anyone deviating from that particular brand of Christianity, and then we would eat. Grandma and I would always go for the sweets first. There were always boxes of sugar cookies, the store-bought kind, mass-produced and easy to find in Michigan. Grandma, I told her once, you buy the best cookies. Everyone laughed at that, because when you think of visiting your grandmother, you think of home-cooked meals and a secret family cookie recipe. Not my grandma. She bought all the desserts, but that didn't make them any less good. Cookies, brownies, jello pudding, cake, and pie in every flavor you could imagine. My grandmother was born in the midst of the Great Depression, raised four boys in relative poverty in the mid-20th century, went through a divorce, remarried, and dealt with the death of her second husband all before she turned 60. For nearly 20 years, she lived on her own, first in Saginaw on a house by the river. Don't play near the river, my dad told me when we went to visit. Then in a nice, quiet house in a nice, quiet neighborhood in Midland, there were candy dishes on every end table, M&M's, Reese's Cups, Skittles, fun-sized candy bars hidden in every nook and cranny in the house. She always said she wanted to be a homeowner until she was 80, and then she would rely on the charity of her sons. So shortly after her 80th birthday, she sold her house and moved in with my aunt and uncle. Not long after, my cousin called me and said, Grandma's going goofy. Going goofy was our polite way of saying Grandma was in the early stages of dementia. She would forget simple things, phone numbers and birthdays, things she'd always known and would stubbornly insist everything was fine. Two days before my 21st birthday, she called me. Happy birthday, sweetheart, she said. I gladly accepted while gently reminding her my birthday was the 9th, not the 7th. That's right, that's right, she said. I knew that. I wanted to see if you knew that. A week later, another phone call. Happy birthday, sweetheart! Ernest Hemingway famously said there are two ways of going bankrupt. Gradually, and then suddenly. Dementia is like that, too. It was noticeable, but it was never severe, it was never debilitating, until quite suddenly it was. It happened in flashes, and my grandmother turned from a solid corporeal human into a will-o'-the-wisp, When you looked at her, it was never certain if she was there or not. It wasn't just phone numbers and dates she was forgetting anymore. It was people. It was names. It was the whole of her life, fading like fog on a mirror. For years, Grandma organized a family trip to Cedar Point. If you're not familiar with the Midwest, Cedar Point is a little like our Mecca. An amusement park on Lake Erie over a dozen roller coasters, the only saving grace the state of Ohio has to offer. On our very last trip, a year and a half ago, she and I shared a hotel room. You'll have to help me out here, sweetie, she told me, clutching my arm and counting on me to remember where we were going to dinner, where our hotel room was in the name of her daughter-in-law. On that trip, we had a big family breakfast at our hotel, and Grandma and I both ordered chocolate milk. We must be related, Grandma said. We moved Grandma into a rest home a few months ago. She'd been living with my aunt and uncle for a few years, but it was starting to wear on them and her needs were growing increasingly difficult to meet without a professional geriatrician on call. My parents and I went to visit her soon after she moved in and took her out to lunch. "'You know, I don't know how Grandma's going to be,' my mom said over the phone when we were making plans. When they moved her into the rest home, she had no idea who my father, her oldest child, was. I didn't know what to expect going up to see her. When we went into the rest home's lobby, my grandma came shuffling out of her room, clutching her younger sister's arm. Her face lit up when she saw my dad, and she went forward to hug him and kiss him on the cheek. "'Oh, I've missed you, sweetie,' she said.' She looked at me and leaned in for a hug. She was so thin and frail like a paper doll come to life. And this handsome young man is here too, she said and kissed me and whispered. It's good to see you, honey. Grandma didn't know who I was, but she knew she knew me. She knew I was a grandchild. She knew I was someone who she loved, someone who loved her back. With any long-term illness, there are going to be good days and bad days. In dementia's good days, sometimes the most you can ask for is a vague, half-formed idea of who your loved ones are. "'We went out to eat. "'In her senescence, Grandma has turned into a picky eater. "'She was always a bit of a picky eater, "'another thing I inherited from her, "'but it's gotten so much worse. "'When the waitress came to take our orders, "'my Aunt Jo ordered for Grandma. "'She'll have a single pancake,' she said, "'with caramel syrup, bananas, "'and a lot of whipped cream.' "'They brought up the food. "'My grandmother, thin and frail and forgetting, "'hardly able to finish a glass of water, "'devoured her sweet, syrupy pancake.' Some things are easy to forget. Others, not so much.
4: If you want me to then I could keep my eyes closed I am always thirsty I am always in a bathroom stall Nothing's
1: Special thanks goes to Taylor Penn, Roxana Namavar, Katherine Walters, Ryan Smith, and Ian Stevenson. Music that you heard in this episode provided by Komiku, Blue Dot Sessions, A Ninja Slob Drumi, Chris Zabriskie, Alpha Hydra, and our very own Evan Marius Michelonis.
4: Hey guys, we really, really, really need your reviews. We need them because without them, we look like a fake podcast. So please, go on iTunes and give us
1: a review. Thank you. We're real. We're a real podcast. And fun. it's the loon cast it's and we're hanging hangin and we're gonna, gonna have a really good, good time.
4: time.